What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success In and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares and set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys that was in Leavenworth with and others who survived their own nightmare. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you built up in your own mind. All right. Welcome back, Nightmare Success listeners. This is where you come for what happens when your worst fear becomes your reality. How do you adapt, survive, overcome? Well, I have a very interesting guy here today. Uh, and I want to give a shout out to Sabrina Morgan because she actually connected me to Danny and his story. And, and you guys might have seen Danny um, because if you have TikTok, this guy is just wrapping it up on TikTok. He's got over 142,000 followers. And I started following him and I am always wondering, hey, what's Danny going to say today? I mean, he's he's very thought provoking. He's a smart guy. He talks about all kinds of different things, but I love, I love his post. And I think that's why he's got so many followers. But Danny's story is, I mean, he went from the Atlanta Braves to prison and that sounds fascinating, but his whole story is fascinating. That, that's just a piece of his story. Uh, but he's, he's out now and he's doing great work with his second chance uh, he's working at a place. I love this idea. It's it's called Containing Luxury, and it's making tiny homes out of uh, shipping containers, which makes all kinds of sense because there's no inventory on the market. People need homes. These are these are affordable homes. They look really cool. Um, and you know, Danny's gone you know a step further. He's working with nonprofits with this uh, this venture, and and uh, it's really helping people who are justice impacted. And um, love everything about it. Can't wait to jump in and unpack all this with Danny. But first, I want to recognize our show sponsor, Autoplast Direct. You know, who likes spending a couple weekends walking car lots, looking for a car? Then you spend like four or five hours in the dealership to buy a car. It's kind of like a trip to the dentist. I'm not talking back bad about dentists here. You know, Eddie Logan, if you need a good dentist, he's a good friend of mine. Check him out over in O'Fallon. Well, there's a better way. Take away all the pain and hassle getting a car. It's called Autoplast Direct. They're your personal car concierge. Just tell them the car you want, what you can pay, and they'll go find that car for you. They'll negotiate your best price, and they will also they also offer you warranties and financing. It's fall full service. Go to autoplazadirect.com to get started with your personal car concierge. The new hassle-free way, the car buying experience you deserve, Auto Plaza Direct. Tell them that Brent from Nightmare Success sent you. All right, Danny Collins. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. Danny and I had uh, quite a, a uh, it, it, it was some work to get on here today. I, I think it was on my side, but uh, we finally got our internet connected. And I think we've got a, uh, we've got good internet, which is good. That's a, that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm uh, echoing inside of a container. Yes. And, and <laughs> exactly. And I, I love that. I love that whole concept with the containers. Cause I think, Danny, I was watching something on the news that we send all the all these containers come over from China and India and whatever, and then they really don't go back. So we just got just piles and piles and piles of inventory of containers, and there's nothing being done with them. And you guys are taking these things and actually making some. And I I checked out the uh, 
what these containers look like on the inside. These are actually really nice containers. I mean, nice yeah, homes. We, we build them out nice. It, the, the whole concept is to have something that is, you know, that is somewhat luxurious, but also affordable. So it's like, I tell people it's like the intersection of luxury and affordability. Yeah. I it's, mean, it's like a really yeah. nice, uh, um, what am I wanting to say? A Winnebago, the, the, uh, it's like one of the touring buses. Yeah. So, and that was kind of like our mindset was to be a replacement, a direct replacement for either RVs or that's what uh, I was looking for. Trailers, you know, because most of the time those things fall apart. It doesn't take long before you start having issues with them. Whereas these are their containers are like tanks, you know. They're like um, tanks. I know some people are thinking metal box, but when you see the inside of them, they're nice. Yeah, they are really nice. You guys, got to yeah. check it out. I get. I think you can go to the website. That's uh, it's called uh, Containing Luxury, right? Yep, containingluxury.com. Yeah. yeah. Danny, um, I was just I was just telling you I, I watched a really inter, inter, interesting, fascinating interview with you with Ian Beck. Uh, it's called Locked In, and um, I want to go back to your growing up story because you have like we were just talking about this before we got on. One of the more interesting stories as a kid that I don't think I've ever ever really heard of anything like what you explained what happened in the driveway but can you go back and just kind of let us into Danny Collins growing up what was your world like and please don't leave out the story about the driveway story gotcha so um I was raised in Fort Pierce Florida uh with my dad and my stepmom but I was raised to believe that my stepmom was my biological mother I didn't know any different and um when I was I would say five or six. I don't know how old I was. I was playing basketball in front of my house, and these two girls come riding by on a girl to the girl and says, Daniel, that's your sister, Rebecca, and they keep on riding. So I didn't know how to process that. I was young, um, didn't really think a whole lot of it, but I, you know, I ran inside and, you know, continued on with my life. And, my house, there wasn't a whole lot of communication. There wasn't a whole lot of affection. There wasn't any of that. Um, my parents never said, I love you. Uh, it was just, you know, there wasn't emotion, you know, anything. And, um, so not too long after that comes up to me and says, Daniel, you don't know me. My name's Rebecca and I'm your sister. And we were at school and I ended up running completely the opposite direction. And I was young. And, um, so if I was able to process this stuff at a young age, I probably would have realized that obviously, you know, they, they live close to me, you know, yeah, um, real close and biking distance. Bicycle. Yeah. yeah. So when I first found out that my mom, the lady I was calling my mom, wasn't my mom was when I was nine, I had to take a birth certificate to the little league fields to verify my age. And so my dad gave me the birth certificate to give to the coach. And when I looked at the name, I saw that the name of the lady I was calling my mom wasn't the name that was on the birth certificate. So, and, um, did, Danny, young, did you, but, I'm curious, like when that happened, I mean, can't imagine what was going through your mind. Cause I mean, all this time you think this is your mom. I mean, I can't, yeah. I, I don't even know how you process that as a kid, but did you go talk to your dad and say, Hey dad, what, what do we do? Like what's going on here? What, 
Where's mom? Where's no. my mom? No. So there wasn't communication really, but I, I started acting out. So uh, I started getting in trouble is one thing. I went to my little league coach and told my little league coach that one day I'm going to grow up and play professional baseball for the Braves specifically said for the Braves. Uh, so maybe my mom would want me. And um, that was kind of the mindset behind that. But like, I never ever said anything to my parents, but I did start acting out. And um, I mean, why do you think you didn't Danny? I mean, that, that seems like, cause it seems like to me that if you found, if you found out that you weren't the son of this lady that you thought that was your mom and your dad, you, you have to assume knows the whole story. Was there a reason why you, were you intimidated to talk to him about it? Or was it just something yeah, you just couldn't get through just, your I head? Didn't go to my parents for, you know, to, to talk about things. There wasn't, you know, my family was very disciplined, you know, had to make straight A's, um, you know, a lot of rules like, and yeah, so I think there was a little bit of fear with my parents. Like I didn't, I, I feared them more than I did, you know, there, cause like I said, there wasn't the affection either. Like my family was very, you know, strict and, um, there wasn't the, the, I love you. So to me, like the whole idea of this concept of love or what that is, it's like, if I behave a certain way, if I perform well, then, you know, um, the adorations there, you know, like it was, but there was this expectation that like, um, I always had to be perfect. And so I didn't, I never opened up to them ever, but I did lash out at them. So like there was a time, um, I think it was about the last time, you know, I, I used to get spanked with the belt. Like yeah. it was that time area. And there was a time where, um, I was being disciplined and I told my mom, I was like, you can't punish me. You're not my real mom. And she started crying and um, I kicked her in the shin and I ran. And um, my dad chased me down. I ended up throwing a sandwich at him that I had in my hand. And, um, you know, of course, I got my butt beat. And, <laughs> um, but we didn't talk about it. So then there was another time, though, and this was the wildest story. So I was dating this girl and my biological mother's maiden name was fields and I was dating this girl, but I didn't, I still didn't even process this. And I was about 16 or 17 at this time. And this is really where at first we first acknowledged it is that I was dating this girl. Her name was crystal and um, her last name was fields, but I didn't put it together and come to find out uh, I was related to her in some way. But I, when I, when I started dating her, um, my dad, my parents were so strict that I had to write down the name of the house, the, the family of where I was going, the dad's name, phone number and address wow. you know, before I could go over there. <laughs> when I wrote the name down, my dad looked at the name on the paper and was like, is her dad a cop? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, you're not going over there. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm not going over there. He said, it has to do with your biological mother. And, and you can, and, and at this time, Danny, you and your dad haven't even really talked about we this, never right? Never talked about it. I mean, there was times where I think he maybe tried to like talk to me, but like I threw a, you know, like I wasn't, I wouldn't, you know, like there was just. Um, I just can't imagine. I mean, I know all the rest of your story that went on in your life, but this had to be a big deal. It was a huge deal for me. I had so much resentment, and I had a lot of resentment towards you know, my stepmom, I never gave her a chance, you know, even though she was the mom in my life, she was, you know, there 
since I was like one. Yeah. So I was, that's how young I was when my biological mother left. So like, I don't remember her at all. Obviously I couldn't tell you, you know, she ended up passing, but I couldn't tell you what she looked like or anything. But, um, I ended up going over to that house anyways, when I went, of course you did. I wasn't over there and <laughs> I told her the story of like what happened. And so she went and told her dad, cause that's whose name I wrote on the paper. Yeah. And then her dad told her that my mom was like his cousin or something. So this girl ended up being like my second, second or third cousin. cousin. So like, thank God, like I didn't sleep with her. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was young, but, um, I still like, it was like, how do you handle that? And I still didn't know how to process that. You know, she started crying. I ended up leaving the house, um, but still never talked about it with my family. And so do you uh, think uh, considering all that stuff that's going on in your head, I mean, that's some wild shit. Um, do you think that the whole sport thing, the baseball and basketball thing, was that an escape for you to get away from that in your mind? Um, I think baseball was just something that I was super passionate about since I was a kid. And, you know, again, my parents were, I couldn't play other sports. I had to pick one sport, like baseball, kind of the sport that I chose. And, you know, um, yeah, baseball was definitely like my escape. It was where I, and it's also where like I received validation and like affection and, you know, like because I did well at it. And that's where like, I felt like that I was getting, you know, the attention because mm -hmm. like I said, my parents were super strict and they worked all the time. Like, you know, I used to have a lot of resentment and blame them for like my issues, but I also understand that like, you know, being a parent doesn't come with the owner's manual and true. You don't so, pick your parents. And I, and I recognize that now that I'm older and I've gotten wiser, but, um, I never learned how to process emotions like, and, and yeah. So ultimately I think that was, I always say the gateway to addiction, the gateway drug is not marijuana or alcohol, but it's childhood trauma, you yeah. know, and that's what always leads to addiction yeah. and it's unresolved childhood trauma. Trying and to I didn't know how to do the one time I went to therapy with my dad and this was after all that, I must've been, I don't know, in my 18, 19, like right around that time, maybe my senior year in high school, I can't even remember when it was, but um, the, the conversation of my biological mother was brought up and my dad started like bawling crying and I had never seen him cry before. So that like, after that meeting, I just never went back, you know, after that session with that therapist, cause it was just too much for me. Cause I, I would run away from anything that, um, involved emotions, you know, and, and involved, you know, talking about feelings or talking about, like, I just didn't, I would freeze up. And, mm -hmm. um, I think that's what ultimately led me down the path that I ended up going on. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, you know, you, I want to talk about this because it's so interesting. Cause I, I know at, at some point you realize, Hey, I'm pretty good at baseball and, you know, but I, I still don't think, you know, in listening to your story, I don't think you believed it, even though everybody around you was starting to say, you know, that this is a, this is a pretty good, this is a six foot three guy that can throw the ball and he's left-handed and, um, but, oh, go ahead. but the, at the other side of things, I think you also had this, all these things you were dealing with, which 
what you're talking about led into kind of the wild side of maybe your escape through drugs and alcohol and that so that you maybe were, were doing both things, both, both baseball and drugs and alcohol were almost like an escape from your world that you didn't want to tackle really. There was kind yeah. of deep and dark and all those things that. Well, that was a big fight in my household too, though, is how I was raised. So, um, and that was always a fight between my parents was how I would be disciplined. And I mean, they would get literally like in almost fist fights with each other. Like, and it was always about my dad was my biggest enabler and, um, he wanted me to, you know, as long as I played baseball and I did well and I made straight A's that he would pay my insurance, that he would, you know, give me gas and a car you earned it. and I didn't have to work. Whereas my mom was like, you know, my, and my dad used to tell my mom, like, this is going to pay off. It's going to pay for his college. It's going to may play professionally. And my mom was like, you're living in la la land. This is, you know, one in a million, make it, right. um, he needs to get a job and learn responsibility. And, um, and I think there was some truth to both of them, you know, yeah. but it was, you know, as a kid, like I used to watch them literally fight with each other and, um, and it was always about me. So yeah. that's the thing. And I had a sister too in the house that was with my dad and my stepmom, And, um, and I can imagine how hard it was for her too, to see this all the time, because like, it was always a fight between mom and dad about me. And it was just about how, how to parent me and, especially because I was a straight A student, but I also got a lot of trouble. I mean, from elementary all the way up, I was always, you know, just into something. And, um, so yeah, that was hard. And I didn't really turn into alcohol. I turned into alcohol drugs, probably a little bit my senior year. And then, you know, my freshman and sophomore year of college, but like, I didn't really have the means, you know, cause we, we weren't rich by any means. So like, um, I think it wasn't until like I signed and I got the big contract is when I really, you know, dove head first into alcohol and drugs. Let's talk about that. Cause you know, I think you were a sophomore in college. Um, and I, I think the story is really fascinating because you didn't think you were getting drafted. And, and one of the guys that he was pretty sure he was getting drafted contacted you. You didn't even believe him. Yeah, I had no idea. So I got drafted my freshman year in college. And back then in baseball, they had 50 rounds. Um, so if you were drafted anything after really probably the 10th round or especially the 20th round, you weren't getting anything. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it was maybe a $1,000 signing bonus. And um, But, yeah, I wasn't expected to get drafted. I probably had the worst season of my life in baseball after my freshman year. I went like one in four with a 4.5 ERA. Um, I was partying in college, like had no expectation. And in fact, when he called me, I was partying at the time and he had watched it on, he was watching the draft on the computer. So like, it, you know, the first couple of days it's on TV and right. then when he plays, just pops up on the computer. So he called me and he was like, uh, Hey, congratulations, man. You just got drafted by the Braves. And I was like, yeah, right. Like, yeah. he was <laughs> like, I'm being for real. You know, like I ended up hanging the phone up on him. And um, he said, no, I'm being for real. Well, then the next day I got a phone call uh, from a guy by the name of Marco Patti. He said, you know, Mr. Collins, congratulations. This is Marco Patti with the Atlanta Braves. And we selected you in the 45th round of this year's amateur draft. And he goes, now our expectation is not to sign you this year. What we want to do what's called a draft and follow. And that was real big back then is that 
if you sign your rights to that team, then they come back out and scout you the next year in college. And the way baseball works is if you go to a junior college, you're draft eligible every year. But if you go to a four-year school, you're not draft eligible until after your junior. And I, so, I, I didn't know that until you. I was I was listening to your other interview. I didn't actually realize that. I thought that the college four-year college guys could get drafted at any time. So it, it's, that was news to me. Yeah, no, not until they complete their junior year. Whereas yeah. like basketball, you could be one and done. Right. You could do your freshman year and go right into the draft. Yeah. Uh, baseball, the rules were different. Um, but I didn't have a whole lot of four-year school offers anyways coming out of high school. My high school wasn't great. Um, you know, I did fairly well, you know, with the, the team that we had. But um, And I did really well in our summer ball. Like, we ended up winning state championship. Like, that's really what started to get me on the radar was after that. And that's when I got the offer to, like, our local junior college. So then – what was so bad is even after my freshman year in college, like I didn't get offered to come back with a scholarship. I had to start looking for other schools. Like that's how bad of a season I had. Wow. But I think after I got drafted, you know, of course they're going to ask you to come back because that's going to guarantee scouts to be out there. Sure. And we had a guy that ended up signing with the twins or something, a pitcher. So like he's, they were like, you know, the scholarship opened up this, you can stay in the dorm. Yeah. And I ended up going back my sophomore year. In my sophomore year, I had probably the best season of my life outside of maybe my, you know, summer uh, ball when we won state championship. But, like, my sophomore year in college, I finished, like, 10 and 2 or something. I threw the only no-hitter in school history, and I happened to throw it in front of a guy by the name of Dayton Moore who ended up being the general manager for the Kansas City Royals when they won the World Series. But Dayton was the head of minor league operations for the Braves at the time. So he was there, plus the Braves national scouting director, and I threw it down in Miami against uh, Miami Dade, which was a school known, you know, for being able to hit the ball well. Yeah, good timing. Good timing, yeah, timing was just everything, and um, I ended up having an agent that told me that he felt like I could sign anywhere from, you know, five hundred to seven hundred fifty thousand, and he wanted me to hold out, and uh, but I ended up signing for a lot less because. Again, the way that whole thing works is that you can't technically sign an agent. Like you hire it, then you lose your amateur. What What are you thinking at the time? I mean, you're all of a sudden in this new world situation, uh, and I'm not sure what's going on with you on your personal side because you, you're you you you've actually got some money, and this is a whole thing that you've thought about since you were a kid and said, I'm going to go to the Atlanta Braves and, and, you know, make my mom love me. So what, what's going on in your mind through all this? Um, you know, what was going on in my life? You know what I mean? Like, I wish I, I was like really aware of like how big this was. Cause yeah. I minimized everything. I just kind of went with the, you know, this is going to happen. This is going to last forever. I'm going to be a multimillionaire and play professional baseball. Right. But not really consciously thinking about the decisions I'm making and how they're going to impact my future, you know? And, uh, I, even when I signed with my agent, he flew me up to New York and we were, we went to the Yankees twin series. This was like in 2003 and um, I ended up meeting like Peyton Manning, Marcus Allen, Jeremy Shockey, David Wells. There was like an eclectic group of people together, and we were at uh, Tau Manhattan. That sounds very and I cool. I remember thinking to myself, and I was in an elevator with George Steinbrenner. I remember thinking to myself, like I had arrived. Yeah. You know, like this is it. You know, like I'm here. Yeah. And uh, but really, I had so much more work to do because I was just 
and rookie ball of the minor leagues. And mm-hmm. at that level, everybody can play, you know, and it's a matter of what you're doing off the field to prepare yourself for your future. And, and uh, I was hanging out with drug dealers back home, you know, like I would go to spring training and literally drive back because our spring training was in Orlando. And I would drive back to my hometown of Fort Pierce, which was two hours away at midnight, you know, to go get some Coke and hang out and party and then drive all the way back and have to be at the field at seven o'clock in the morning. Uh, the next day, there was even a time where I was so bad that I ended up passing out on the field, you know, in spring training. I was so malnourished. I was like 155 pounds. Wow. Six foot three. I couldn't even get the ball to home plate. Like, <laughs> so, like I had to like get it back together real quick. Cause I didn't work out in the off season. Like I was, I was caught up in the wrong crowd when I went back home, you know, uh, and you had money too. And, and it just happened. Like I said, it happened so fast, you know, and you had money too, you know, Danny at that time. I mean, it was like, uh, you, you could, for a 19, you know, um, I think the very first check I got was just one check for like 62,000. Then I got another check for 62,000. Plus I had another 40,000 for school. So like, I mean, for me growing up poor and, you know, paycheck to paycheck with my parents to now having, you know, a good decent check, you know, chunk of cash. Like it was to me, like, and and with the thought that like, now I'm going to get, make a whole bunch more, you know, like, and that was always like, the carrot on the stick is that, you know, it's just the beginning. Well, when you passed out on the, on the field and, and you're malnourished, I mean, are, are you thinking, shit, I've really messed this up? Or are you thinking, well, they're going to give me a second chance. I'll, I'll be able to work this out. I'm not even thinking about any of that. They don't even know what is going on with me. Um, and that's the problem. I was so wrapped up in addiction at the time that I didn't even know it. And even if you tried to tell me, I wouldn't listen. Like you couldn't tell me nothing. Like I thought that I had it going on. Like I was partying. I remember going out with, um, the guys and stuff. And I came back and you had people like Jeff Francoeur and Brian McCann. And these are the, you know, big league prospects. And they're kind of looking at me like, this guy is crazy. Mm -hmm. You know, like I had different like girls coming back to the hotel. Like it was just, I was caught up in the lifestyle of being rich and famous, but I'm nowhere near that (laughs) because I'm, delusional but you're living the lifestyle i'm living the lifestyle and um thinking that you know this is it but i was so yeah so when they finally released me um because at first they didn't they suspended me indefinitely and uh i just kept getting in trouble they finally said you can't go out it you know like if you get caught up in anything else you know like this is it yeah and i ended up going out where other people got in trouble got in a fight and I happened to be there. And once my name got back to it, um, they ended up suspending me. But they, there was even a time where they had to come. We're in the hotel in spring training, and they had to come cut the chain on my door. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't go to the field because I was so, like, hungover and messed up from, you know, weeks of partying. And um, Braves officials, like, came and, you know, cut the chain on my door and, to get in to like be like what's going on like what are you doing and um yeah like i was just way out of control at that point danny are you thinking holy shit what or is it just you're in such a spiral that it's just like it's a blur and and most people when they're in that spiral like they don't see it obviously if they did they would 
if they were had the ability to consciously sit down and think about what their life, you know, what they're doing with their life, like, and that's that's the reality of addiction. You know, yeah. like addiction will grab a hold of you and it will completely destroy you, your life. And I say it all the time, addiction is the only disease powerful enough to affect people that don't even have it. Cause it was yeah. making like my family sick. It was making the people around me sick. Like, because of course they're trying to help me, you know, they're trying to talk sense into me, but I'm just thinking like I'm playing professional baseball. This is, you know, I was arrogant, but I was at, at the same time really insecure. And um, again, it was just, I didn't know how to process emotions. I didn't know how to process feelings. And the one thing that always worked for me was the alcohol or the drugs. So what happens to you when they cut that chain and you go back, what do you do? They ended up suspending me indefinitely. So when I went back home, I went right back to the same drug dealer friends. Um, I was living in a house with three different drug dealers. It was basically a trap house. And, you know, we had, at any given time, there could probably be a quarter key of Coke in there, guns everywhere. Like it was just, that's the lifestyle that I thought that, you know, I'm going to live. And, um, just, it was just insanity really. And, you know, when they suspended me indefinitely, my agent's trying to get me to get it back together. He's telling me to go work out. I'm skipping workouts. Like, and after a few months, I even, I started working with my dad a little bit and, you know, he's trying to talk to me. And, um, after a few months, the Braves called me up to let me know that they were releasing me. And, uh, at then, by then I was just too far gone within the next few months. I'm homeless, like mm-hmm. in the streets, spent all the money. Like it, just, that's how fast the spiral was. And it was just bam, 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 bam. And, uh, before you know it, it's, you know, it's over with. How long were you homeless? Oh, probably a few years, technically. I wow. mean, couch surfing, living yeah. with other people, living with a girlfriend, you know. Um, I mean, it got so bad that I even took the money that the Braves gave me to go back to school. I went to the University of South Florida, spent all the money there. Uh, got so bad that I started to sell the furniture in a furnished apartment that I was renting <laughs> that I called, I called my dad or I actually emailed him and told him, like, if you just spell me out this, you know, one last time I'll get it together. And I wrote him this super long email and then, you know, he wrote me back and I got it tattooed on the side of me now, but he said, son, words are easy to say. Actions govern our lives. Life is a short trip to a small planet. Life everlasting is your choice. Mm. And that always stuck with me because I wrote him like this four page email of how, if you just, you know, I'm going to get it together. And my dad was a man of few words, you know, he didn't communicate much, but he, he was always there. You know, my dad's the one that raised me when my biological mother left, he dropped out of law school to raise me. Yeah. And, uh, he worked at a grocery store, you know, for years before he started working for craft foods and corporate America. And, but he was always, you he know, the there. person that I could call on that was there. If I was in trouble, he's coming to pick me up. There was times where like I was homeless in different cities. Like I'd be in, you know, a trap house in Jacksonville on the East side of Jacksonville in Springfield, and, uh, you know, I'd call my dad and he'd come pay like my, my dope bill and pick me up from the house. And, um, so many times, like I put them through so much, you know, emotional pain and just financial strain. And it was yeah. just because after I spent all my money and I'm starting to get in trouble, like minor arrests that started, but it progressively got worse. And that was the other thing too, is that early on when I was getting arrested, they thought that they were protecting me 
So they'd slap me on the wrist. And this is before the ad, you know, the age of social media. Cause right. now the, the stuff that I would, I did like immediately they would have released me like immediate because it would have just been too much negative attention. But mm-hmm. the amount of privilege that I had in that, and that's something else that I look at is that because of my status as a professional baseball player, you know, I got arrested possession of cocaine. You know, they slapped me on my wrist and let me go because they always thought that he's going to get back to his career. He's right, he'll be all right. Yeah. And it just never happened because I didn't get the help that I needed. Yeah. And uh, before you know it is when I'm looking at prison. You know, I get in a high-speed chase. and Well, we've got to talk about this high-speed chase because <laughs> it's like, you know, some of this stuff – Danny, that you talk about, you see in movies and this high speed chase thing. Uh, first of all, you're lucky you're alive. I mean, I, I can't really believe that this all happened and you survived, but walk the listeners through what happened that day and what was, <laughs> how it happened. So Obviously, I was homeless at this time. Basically, uh, I was living out of my truck. I was working for a company out of Jacksonville. Um, I was doing marketing. I was in their work truck. Their truck, living yeah. Out of it. Yeah, and um, the girlfriend uh, that I was with is the person that I'm married to now, and we're actually separated, but she um, she had kicked me out like because I was actively using. You can't come back here. So I'm living out of this truck, and I'm – kind of in and out living with my friend back home, but my friend's also on the side, you know, hustling drugs and I'm getting, you know, drugs from him. And, um, finally he's like cutting me off and he's like, dude, you got to get it together. And I get mad. I got a bunch of stuff over at his house. He's not there. I go to the house. It's late. Um, I knock on the door, his girlfriend's sister answers the door and I'm like, Hey, can I come in and get some of my stuff? I got it here. And she's like, yeah, you know, so I go in there, I grab my stuff. I go into his safe. I grab some stuff out of his safe. I tuck it in my shoe. I grab some jewelry and other stuff. And then I end up leaving. Well, when I leave, I'm like, dang, I should have grabbed everything. I still had a (laughs) bunch of my stuff there, my clothes, everything. So now when I go back, I knock on the door again. She opens up the door, but she's on the phone and she has a look on her face like, now she knows that like, I'm not supposed to be there. So I take it upon myself to walk in the door. She doesn't say anything to me, but you can tell she's on the phone with probably him. Mm -hmm. Um, I grab more stuff, my stuff. I go to leave. Now here he comes around the corner. Um, you know, I hurry up and get in the truck and I take off, but his girlfriend, you know, calls the cops. Um, as I'm leaving, I'm going to go back down South where, my girlfriend's living at the time, even though she doesn't want me there. But like now I'm just, yeah. I'm in just spending. I'm not thinking yeah. Really, yeah. There's no clarity. I'm not making sound decisions. Uh, as I'm going to get, make a turn to go onto the road to go to 95, I 95. Um, there's a cop coming and we're the only two people on the road and I'm going to turn right. And I see he's got his left turn signal on. So I say, you know what? I'm just going to keep going straight. Mm-hmm. Well, when I go straight, I look in my rearview mirror. I see he stops in the road. And now I know he's turning around. So before he can even turn around, I start taking off. Because um, I know he's coming for me. Mm-hmm. And when I take off, next thing you know, here he comes behind me with the sirens. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm not stopping. You know, they're going to have to kill me. Like, this is it. Like, my, my life was in such disarray. It was so dysfunctional. 
Yeah, and you didn't care about living at that time. I, I remember this information looking at your stuff, and then you you were like, I don't. In fact, you took some opportunities and and didn't get through it. But you were in that mindset. You you didn't care. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The house could have hurt somebody else. Thank God it didn't. And you know, obviously, I'm still here. But um, I I'm hauling butt down this road. Obviously the cops coming behind me fast. I start turning off on a bunch of back roads and I turn the headlights off, but every time I'm hitting the brakes, the cops on me again. So I end up coming to a dead end road cops behind me, get out of the car, like with their guns drawn and I'm looking and I'm like, this is it. Like I'm not stopping. Like they're going to, they're going to have to kill me. So I dropped the truck into it's a little four banger, you know, five speed Nissan frontier um, company truck that I'm in and I put it in first gear. I whip it around and now I'm facing in the direction of the cops. And, you know, by the grace of God, I didn't hit any of them. I managed to get through without hitting them and they didn't shoot me. And, um, and I kept driving, but now I'm like, I got to figure out a way to lights off because every time I hit the brakes, they're on me. So I get this bright idea that I'm going to start pulling fuses. So I'm reaching down for the fuse box. Cops are chasing me. I look up and the road ends. There's like a mound of dirt with signs in it, you know, that are pointing. You got to go left or right. Yeah. Like and not straight. straight. And I went straight and I went up. I caught air. Um, I tried to turn the wheel last minute. So when I landed, the truck was facing back towards the canal, but I hit the water. So I hit the water. Uh, my head hits the windshield. I start panicking. There's a bunch of water coming in the truck. I'm freaking out. Now, all of a sudden, you know, these thoughts of suicide and not wanting to live self-preservation kicks in. Like now I'm doing whatever I can to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I start swallowing a bunch of water because I'm panicking, but I can't get the doors open. I can't get the windows open. Truck starts sinking and there's a hatch in this truck and there's a camper on the back. So I don't know if i you know, if I punched the glass or if I just went through, if it broke on impact, but I have a, a scar right there. I don't oh God, that's a it, huge scar. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge scar. And it, um, right on my hand, I ended up going through like this hatch and I feel like somebody like pulls me through, but I go to swim up, you know, like in my mind, I'm just trying to get air mm-hmm. and I go to swim up. My head hits the camper because there's so much water. So like, I'm trying to get up. I'm just being brushed with water. My head hits the camper and I'm like, shoot like i can't get out of here and one of the vehicles it's like it doesn't go complete like it started like level out a little bit like you know as the water's filling but there's still a back corner pocket of air in the back of this truck and i go get that pocket of air and finally like the corner pops open and as the truck is going completely under i'm coming out at the same time so it was like a vacuum it was like a black hole like it pulled me like it was pulling me under as I'm trying to get out, but I feel somebody like pull me up. And so I finally get up to the air in my mind. I'm still running, but I'm, you know, out of breath, I'm panicking. And, um, the vehicle goes completely under. I look on one side of the road. I look on the other side of the road. I see cop lights. I'm still running. I see a Q beam shine in the water. So after I started trying to swim, this canal is called Taylor Creek Canal in Fort Pierce. It's a strong canal. It goes out to the river. It runs all the way from Lake Okeechobee out to the, you know, the Kissimmee River, all the way out to the, you know, the river. Mm-hmm. And strong current. So I can't, I realize I, I can't swim in this current. I'm, I'm done. So I, I was like, you know what? I give up. I surrender. 
I swim to this Q beam shine in the water. I get to the land and it's a steep climb. It's like a steep canal bank. It's filled with high grass. And, um, I end up getting up on the canal bank and I, and I black out, I completely pass out. And when I wake up, it's the next day and I'm laying there on the side of the canal bank. I'm covered in blood. Um, all I got on is a t-shirt and boxer briefs. The current was so strong. It ripped my shorts off. It ripped my shoes off. I had a pair of Chuck Taylors ripped my shoes off. My whole leg sliced open the bottom of my foot sliced open. And I start screaming, you know, you're lucky um, to bleed to death. Yeah. What's that? I said, you're lucky you didn't bleed to death. Yeah. And I don't know how much time went by or our gators, you know, this is, this yeah. is Florida and yeah. canal and that I didn't drown. But, yeah. um, all those so, things. Yeah, when I wake up and, and I'm covered in blood, I start screaming. Next thing you know, a cop and an ambulance comes up and I don't know how much time went by, but they, they get out of the, their vehicles and they're looking in the water. They're not even looking over at me. They, mm-hmm. then they hear me scream. They start coming over. Well, first thing I do is start cussing them out. Like you MFers pulled me out of this truck. You left me here for dead. Mm-hmm. I need to get to the hospital. And they were like, we didn't pull you out of that vehicle, you know? And I was like, if you didn't pull me out of the vehicle, how did I get here? And what brought you back to the spot? Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, we thought you pulled a Houdini and disappeared. There was a lady on the corner of the street. Uh, I guess she heard somebody screaming, you know, bloody murder for their life. And that there was a white male out here covered in blood. And that's what brought them back. I guess they got the call and they came back to that spot. And um, they kept asking me who was driving. Like, that's all they were concerned with. And me being green to the system at the time, because technically that truck's in the vehicle. I'm on the side of the canal bank. Anybody could have been driving. Exactly. You know, right. Another driver that got away. But all I kept saying is I was driving. Who the hell else do you think was driving? Because in my mind, they pulled me out of this vehicle and they left me there. Like, I don't know what I was thinking at yeah. the time. But um, so they ended up taking me to the hospital. Um, my dad goes up there. You know, he's there for a little while. Then um, my girlfriend at the time, who's my wife now that I'm separated from, she was getting ready to come up there. And as she's getting ready to come up there, they finally put me under arrest and they handcuffed me to the bed. And um, I ended up getting 52.6 months in prison, followed by a year house arrest in that. And what did they charge you with, Danny? What was the all the two burglary of occupied dwellings yeah. for my friend's house where yeah. my stuff was? And he even dropped the charges. You know, um, he didn't want to press charges. My dad gave him some money for restitution, mm-hmm. and uh, he dropped the charges. Um, I was charged with two burglary of occupied dwellings, two grand thefts. Um, I think a burglary of conveyance for going in the vehicle, mm-hmm. um, his vehicle in the driveway. Um, Aggravated fleeing and eluding. They initially charged me with aggravating assault on the officer because they said that when my vehicle was pointed in his direction, he was in fear of his life. life. Yeah. And thank God, because it becomes a deadly missile. Sure. And I could only imagine, like, thank God I didn't hit him. Right. And, um, you know, because that would have been the end of my life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the end of his, obviously, the, you know, the danger that, you know, when you're in active addiction, making these poor decisions that, you know, putting other people's lives in danger. And, um, so they ended up dropping that down to a misdemeanor. Um, and I had a possession of cocaine that I was already out on bond for. Okay. So I ended up having like nine felonies on that. On that day. Case. Yeah. Yeah. And they put all the, they ended up putting all the cases together. 
and I know, Danny, you had kind of gone in and out of things with being arrested, but this was like your first real time in prison. Um, what was that like for you to go in that that world knowing that you're going to be there for a while? I mean, obviously it was super fearful at first. I, I did almost a year and a half in the county. They were offering me 20 years, 20 years, 20 years. I finally pled out in front of a judge with a 10-year cap, and he gave me what I scored out to on my points, which was 52.6 months, followed by a year house arrest. When I went to prison, I had about two years left of time to do. They immediately sent me to a super low custody work camp. So my experience wasn't horrible the first time around. Obviously, it was prison, and prison wasn't a great place, but I kind of stuck to myself. I didn't get up in the subculture of prison, and um, that time kind of went by pretty quickly. And it sucked. Obviously, it sucked being away from family the conditions of prison, you know, the food, everything going from the life that I had lived before to being in this environment. And it was just completely different. Um, but the second time I went to prison is what ultimately ended up being like the worst experience for my life. So when I went to prison that first time I came home, um, started going really well. I worked at a treatment center. I ended up getting married, got somebody pregnant and we had and I ended up relapsing and I went back to prison. So I got charged with a burglary at my parents' house. The second time I went to prison and my parents just tried to call the cops to get me help. And the state ended up, you know, picking up charges. My parents even tried to drop the charges. So the state offered me 15 years. My parents went to the state to sign paperwork to drop the charges. The state told my parents, you're not the victim. You're our star witness. He didn't commit a crime against you. He committed a crime against the state of Florida. Mm. Uh, I ended up pleading out to seven years in prison followed by five years probation. So now this is two times that I went to prison. So the first time was like, not so bad in my mind. You know, I got through it. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, it was obviously hard, but there was no rehabilitation. Right. You know, there was no, it was just a timeout from society. I, I lucked up and went to a, a super laid back spot that was a work camp and it was, you know, low custody. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really have any issues. Second time I got caught up in the subculture of prison. Um, I was actively using, I was, uh, ended up joining a gang mm -hmm. and, um, it just completely changed my life. Like, uh, covered, I went in like with like no tattoos came out covered in tattoos, you know, joined a gang, a white supremacist organization of all things. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, it was at the height of the whole, you know, Trump black lives matters movement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I started getting the thing in my head that, you know, white males were being discriminated against in America and you can't be a white Christian conservative. And so I got deeply into the politics of prison and all that. And it was just my second time was a, a horrible experience and, um, being caught up in, in, you know, gang politics, being caught up in the prison world. And, you know, obviously it's very tribal. There was a lot of, you know, racism. There was a lot of people not getting, you know, and I got along with a lot of people, but I, sure. also, um, you know, I was easy to get along with, you know, and people kind of gravitated towards my story a little bit that, you know, I played professional baseball and I played sports in prison, but, um, I also started to get deeply influenced by like politics, right. And, um, became very 
racist, you know, mm-hmm. like stuff that was already living inside of me started to come out at the height of like that, you know, the whole Trump Black Lives Matters movement in 2016. Mm-hmm. So I think that experience in prison is like, you know. Well, I think it's interesting how, you know, going into, like you, you said it really well, it's a primitive environment. It's tribal. And, and you have, one of the things I always thought about when, when I was in was that, you know, I was desperately afraid of losing myself, losing who I was. And I tried, mm-hmm. to, you know, to have a prison job that, you know, I worked at the food. I just tried to do things that kept me feeling like me because it's so easy to fall into the institutionalized feel of I don't have any control uh, or the things I have control with I'm doing because I'm in this prison. And, and it's a, it's a, it's a weird environment. It's a real mind play, I think, to create almost mind hacks to try to keep yourself being you. And, you know, I, I always wonder because I didn't do, I, I had a five-year sentence. I always wonder, you know, like somebody that has 20 years, how do you keep yourself sane enough to where you aren't totally institutionalized you know the movie Shawshank is so deep because it has so many meanings to it and layers to it but um I think about that one line that uh, I think Red says he said when you first come in here that you look at these walls and they're to keep you in and then as longer you're here the the walls that put their arms around you and give you comfort and that's kind of like the institutionalized feel of being inside prison And that's what I became institutionalized. It yeah. was the second time I realized, okay, I'm in this for a while. Like, and this is my life. This environment had already did time. Like, so I wasn't, you know, as green as I was the first time around. I was, I knew what to expect. I knew it does. Like it, it starts to, you people become institutionalized because there's, it's a different code for living in yeah. there. And, yeah. and it's, it's street rules, you know, and it's, and I tell people all the time, it's like if somebody comes in and takes something out of your locker, it's not, you're not going to knock on the window, <laughs> tell the officer, Hey, this guy took this out of my locker. No, you got to like deal with it. You got to fight. You got to like, you know, otherwise you become prey because right. in there it's, you, it's either predator or prey, yep. you know, there's really not any, any in between. So mm-hmm. like, um, whereas in society you're taught that if somebody comes and takes something from you and they're not, you're not doing it while you're there, like steal something from you mm-hmm. while you're not at your house that you call the cops and, you know, and you go through the proper channels right, of law process. Yeah. So like, it's just the whole code of living for prison is completely different. And I did, I became institutionalized. I became caught up in that world. And, um, well, so, and knowing that, Danny, when you were getting close to the door of getting out, what was what thoughts were going through your mind on how you were getting back in? I was not preparing myself at all. Like I was a mess all the way to the time I left prison. Like mm-hmm. prison did nothing to rehabilitate me um, at all. Like I came out. The only thing that that locked up is I ended up going to confinement, like with almost like thirty days left. But I was trying. To I was at a work camp. I was trying to go over to the main unit to, to get, um, drugs, drugs. basically to bring back. Cause I was still actively up in that lifestyle and mm-hmm. I ended up getting caught being in an unauthorized area and mm-hmm. they put me in confinement. And within the last, you know, 30 plus days, I ended up having time to like kind of dry out and clean up. And, um, and when I came home, you know, like I white knuckled it for a while 
to where I was able to, you know, I, I always do well enough where I can stay clean six, seven, eight months on my own. Mm-hmm. But there was, then I'd go right back to that vicious cycle. Um, and that's kind of what happened. You know, even this last time when I came home, I did really well at first and then I started to have problems and I relapsed. Bam. And almost real close to getting in trouble again. But this time they put me in mental health court mm. and mental health court absolutely changed my life. Like it gave me access to therapy. I was able to deal with all the childhood trauma from, mm. you know, what it was like growing up with my parents and not knowing my mom. Um, I was able to deal with, obviously my whole identity was in professional baseball. I didn't know what to do with my life after that. Like, who am I as a person? Mm-hmm. And I really got the chance to start to learn like who I am. Um, I also got to see a psychiatrist. They put me on medication to kind of stabilize me, but learning how to process emotions and articulate how I'm feeling. And this is all through the courts. Well, see, I did, uh, Danny, is that, I, I'm, I'm thinking that that's, obviously that's not a federal thing. So that's a state thing within Florida. So I'd been in and out of jail my entire life and never once did the system offer me help 20 plus years. They either slapped me on my wrist and sent me home or they sent me to prison. There was never any, you know, rehabilitation finally. And the only reason I was able to get rehabilitation this time is because, um, my wife who I'm separated from right now paid $23,000 for a lawyer. And, um, that lawyer was able to get me into mental health court and mental health court changed my life. So mental health court, what they have here is that you get assigned a case manager. You get, you got to see a, a psychiatrist that put you on any medication. If you need it, you know, they diagnose you. Then they, you also have to see a therapist. You have to show up in court, you know, um, and at first, like once a month, um, you have to take drug tests. I initially, I took drug tests three times a week. Mm but it gave me resources and access to a team of people. I had two peer specialists, a case manager, a psychiatrist and a therapist. And I started to get better. Like miraculously, like I had access to men. Like I started to treat the trauma that I had from a child that exactly. I never had a process. I didn't know how to articulate what I was feeling. I knew what I was feeling. I knew I didn't feel right, but I couldn't describe it. I couldn't talk about it because we, you know, I grew up in a household where we didn't talk yeah, about you didn't talk about anything. Yeah, you didn't even talk about emotion. the fact that you don't have a mom that she's she's probably somewhere in the neighborhood and and, and, yeah. and a sister. Yeah. yeah, you don't talk about that either. And she ended up passing before I went to prison the second time. Wow. And uh, and you know, my wife at the time she ended up giving me the courage to call her. She was like, "You need to give her a call. You need to get some closure." And I called her. And when I asked her, like why she left. She said that, you know, she already had a daughter from a different relationship and she couldn't afford like the child support. And it was just a lot for her as a mother. And, um, I was so mad at her. Like, I was like, that's a poor excuse. You know, that's a cop out. She ended up signing her rights over. And, um, and she wanted me to come see her. And I was just so mad that I was like, you know, maybe when I get out of prison, I'll come see you. Mm-hmm. And when I was in prison, I ended up calling home and I got the news that she was in hospice. So the Lieutenant on the compound, let me go call her. And I was able to call her. I forgave her. Um, you know, and within hours she ended up passing. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, but I struggled with that and I finally got some closure with it cause I, I learned how to deal with it. And I realized that, you know, it wasn't my fault that, you know, I felt, you know, rejected and there was a lot of sure. abandonment issues and, you know, it obviously um, affected my other relationships in life and 
keeping people at arm's length and not trusting them and waiting for the, you know, the other, you know, foot to drop. Yeah. But the other thing too, like even now, like I'm going through my own child custody thing and I realized that how hard it is and how much money it costs. You know, it's cost me so much money to try to fight to see my son. And now I think about my mom because before I always blamed her. Like my dad was my hero. Like he manned up, he raised me. Like, yeah. but, you know, there's always two sides to a story. How old and is your son now, Danny? He's nine, nine, nine. And he was born right before I went. So he was born in September of 2014. I was arrested December of 2014. Mm. I got out in 2021 um, and tried calling, you know, my son was allowed to see my parents the entire time I was incarcerated. So about a month before I came home mm. and then she just stopped. And, uh, her reasoning for not allowing me to see him and trying to keep him out of my life is that she just flat out says that I'm going to relapse and go back to prison. Mm. You know, like she, her fear is that why introduce him to me when I'm just going to do what I always do. She doesn't trust your situation, right? Yeah. And I understand the skepticism, but it, like, how long do you punish somebody? Right. At what Can't be lifetime. Say, yeah. Okay. Are they doing the work? you know, give them an opportunity because, you know, as a convicted felon, like yeah. if you're not working for yourself or creating your own little hustle, like job opportunities aren't out there. Like really if tough. you got that convicted felon label and, um, then it's a lifetime it's label, a lifetime label. Yeah. Yep. You can be denied housing. You can be denied, uh, jobs you can be denied education and i was i came home i wanted to work badly i just tried to work like apply at like home depot and target mm -hmm. places denied me because yeah. i said it was too recent yeah if it wasn't for my boss here uh, you know with the shipping containers offering me a job like i don't know what i would have done well i love and the story about that too because he really identified with you danny and said hey this could have been me I could have but yeah. you know what i chose to go this direction and you took the fork in the in the road and went the other direction so cool because you're with somebody that you have a lot of talents and he's using your talents that other people are checking off as not needed because of, of your uh, being an ex felon and you're given an opportunity here. Uh, how, exactly. How did that happen? As, you know, I know what he said as far, but how did you find it? How did you find the opportunity? So in my community, my case manager from mental health court, um, got me to go to a place called Project Lift, which is a nonprofit. They teach trades to people coming out of incarceration and to at-risk youth. And I was like, okay, well, people coming out of prison, if you got a felon, felony, you're like basically relegated to blue-collar jobs. Mm -hmm. Like that's all the jobs you're going to be able to get, go work at a construction site or do something. Right. And that's re not really where my skill set was. Like I wasn't raised to work with my hands and do manual labor. You right. know, like I always did, you know, marketing or sales or, right. you know, other, other jobs and stuff. So like, um, I was like, finally, I, I'll give them a, a chance because my experience with a lot of these nonprofits and stuff like that, especially if there are any government funding is that it's superficial. Like they mm -hmm. get the government funding, but they don't really do anything to help you. Yep. And so I was real skeptical at first. And then finally I was like, you know what? I'll give it a shot. And it was legit. Like they were paying me $15 an hour to teach me a trade. And I was like, okay, like, um, cool. So then they had a Christmas party for like donors and, um, they asked me if I would work it. And I was like, sure. So I ended up working, you know, picking up trash behind wealthy people and, um, <laughs> <laughs> basically like if they'd leave their cup down, I'd go yeah. throw it in the trash for them and, and stuff like that. And I was passing out t-shirts and 
the owner of this company was there and he asked the director of operations, he goes, give me, I need some employees. Give me your best guy, one person. And the guy pointed to me and said, him called me over there, introduced me to him. And he was like, Hey, can you be to work tomorrow at, you know, 7am or Monday at 7am? And I was like, absolutely. I showed up, I started working in the back, making these, um, you know, helping to build. I didn't really have a skill set, but I was willing to work and learn mm-hmm. and do whatever, you know, I'm a fast learner. I was mm-hmm. just like, you got to show me. And even then I'm still not like great with my hands. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not either, Danny. I'm... Yeah. Just, you could tell you, I could figure, I could tell you how to do it, yeah. but when yeah. I'm physically trying to do it myself, oh, I get it. Yeah. But, um, I did that for about a month or two and then he saw my ability to connect with people and network and my social media presence and stuff like that. And he said, you know what, your skills could be best used somewhere else. And so he gave me opportunity to start working in sales. And then now I became the director of sales and, you know, with business development and we're looking to build communities of container homes. And there's so many different applications, obviously like a starter home for young people um, come right out of college or even, you know, blue collar worker, whatever. There's also the application of helping the unhoused, you know, people who are absolutely in homelessness and we're working with a nonprofit right now. That's what they want to do. Another nonprofit wants to provide veteran housing. Mm -hmm. So like, I appreciated it because I know what it's like to be homeless. I know what it's like to come out of incarceration and be justice impacted and not have access to resources like housing. And, um, it's perfect, Danny. I mean, I I love, I, I, I just love this whole thing that you're doing because everything that you are about down to your soul is encapsulized into what you can do with this. And, and it's so needed. It's so needed. What you just listed off is all the different places and people that need this. And on top of it, it's a nice uh, living environment. So, you know, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. And that's what I say. Even like 95% of people coming out of prison, 95% of people in prison will come out one day, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to return back to the same community that they once were in. Right. Sometimes victimizing other people. And it's like, what do you want these people to be when they come out? You know, better neighbors yeah. or better criminals. Good neighbors are better criminals. And right. if we don't give people coming from incarceration access to resources and the ability to change their lives, then we're only creating a less safe society. We're actually, I mean, by default saying de facto we're pro-crime. So well, and it sounds like to me you have lived through those layers because you would have probably Danny have been back in, except for the fact that you went through the mental health court, were able to get all those resources. And now you have something to grab onto, you know, you've got, you got some side things to grab onto you. So you're not just falling down a, you know, a hole that keeps getting bigger. Strong foundation. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big deal. Mental health court 100% saved my life. And that's when you put rehabilitation as the norm and punishment, you know, prison as the alternative. Like yeah. that should always be the alternative. Like, yeah. and I think that if we look at mental health and substance abuse, if we look at our criminal justice system, just look at that as a public health crisis and not a morality issue. Yeah. Because I think in America we treat crime, but we don't treat people. And we look at, we look at it from a morality issue. We think it's bad people who need to become good rather than sick people who need to become well. Yes. And there's good people that make bad decisions in yes. active addiction that make bad decisions, you know, Absolutely. In, in moments of not thinking clearly. So like 
that really, because it gave me the tools and the access. I had a lot of childhood trauma and some people deal with trauma on their own and they're able to cope and they live yeah. great lives and they never commit a crime and they never get addicted. And, yeah. you know, my, I have so much love for those people and so much respect and admiration because I wish I would have been that person, but I wasn't. And, you know, for the longest time I carried so much shame and guilt thinking I was a bad person. Like, and that's why I wanted to end my life. It's because I thought I was a bad person. And when society's telling you're a bad person, you know, because yeah, I made a lot of bad decisions. I hurt a lot of people and I have a lot of regrets for that. You know, the emotional pain I called my family and people around me, but I was a sick person. And once I started to look at my life from that perspective that like, you know, like you're not a bad person, you weren't a bad kid. I don't think there's anything as such thing as bad kids. You know, yeah. there might be some troubled kids, your kids their that, you know, that yeah. more attention and love. But, um, well, and I think yeah. the other thing, Danny, that I think is interesting from a lot of different angles is, you know, you're really popular on TikTok and I think it's your vulnerability and the rawness of you don't have to, you know, there's a lot of people out there saying things and not living it, you know, or believing they're saying it, but not believing it. And, or it's, it's a, it's a facade. I think one of the things that I like about that platform because there's a lot of people that are ex-felons on that platform. And, um, you know, Sabrina Morgan's another one that's really popular on there. And it's because she's really open. Yeah, Sabrina, great. And, and I think that's why you, people are drawn to your, uh, your posts and what you're doing and what you're saying. And I think it can help a lot of people. You know, that's the thing. It, you know, a lot of people say these platforms are bad which I, I, I think there's some things that, you know, kids have a really tough time with the social media and the bullying and everything, but there are some really good things that can come from it too. Like the things that you do with your post and, and Sabrina, and the, th those actually are helping people grab onto something because they feel like they have nowhere to turn. So um, thank God you're doing that because, you know, I so respect the fact that when you have what, we have, you have two ways to go with it. You can hide and hope that nobody finds out who you are, which I don't think you can do at this day and age. There's too many ways to Google and find you. Yeah, um, right. But the other thing is to lead with it and try to help people so that they can find a different path. And, and that's what you're doing through what you're doing with your work, what you're doing with your social media. And, and, and that's why I was really excited to talk to you because I think, um, you know, hopefully we can get more Danny Collins out there that, that, um, you know, spread the word that you, you don't have to live a life that you don't want to live. You can actually improve it. Yeah. And hopefully we get, thank you. I appreciate that. And hopefully we get more people that, um, that destigmatize, you know, people that have been incarcerated, justice impacted, or people that, you know, suffer from mental health and substance abuse. And then we can start doing some more preventative stuff to yeah. stop people from going yeah. down that road. Like ultimately I, I would love to do that as well as like admonish our youth to not, you know, cause choices have consequences, man. And, and, and they the can change your life, you know, and yeah. it, it can change your life and you, you can still pull yourself out of the ditch, but it would preferable not to go in the ditch. Yeah. Preferable <laughs> not to go in the ditch. Yeah. Absolutely. Or for yeah. your case, going into a lake of water and, and yeah, swimming and out. Now. What a metaphor. I think um, that's the other two things too, is I minimize my, the impact that my story could have or like how crazy it really was. Yeah. Cause I think like, a lot of people tell me like, you should write a book or your yeah. story is like a movie. And I think I minimize it a lot. Like, Oh, it's not that. Well, it's cause you know why it's because you've lived it. 
Danny. I know I was talking to a group of college kids the other day and once I got talking about it, I realized how weird it was what I just said that I, I was a 15 year old kid that went to visit my dad in prison. And then I got out of prison at 50 years old and I went back to visit my dad in the same visiting room in that same prison. And he he had been in twice, but then they were like, you God, you're really messed up. And I said, well, I didn't know I was messed up, but maybe that sounds really messed up. <laughs> that's, that's maybe yeah, not normal. normal for us, right? Yeah. Become desensitized. Right. And I think that even the second time I went to prison, I was desensitized sure. to prison. Like, sure. You know, because it's... You were already there. It didn't scare you the way that it scares you when you walk in the first time. Yeah. Danny, I, I've loved this conversation. I, and I always ask people, you know, at the end of our interview, all the things that you just said about the fact that it probably should be I think it should be a book and what you've lived on your journey. What do you think's your biggest takeaway through all that you've been to up till now? Um, I mean, for me, the biggest thing is finding out who I am, you yeah. know, as a person being true to, to who I am. Like I said, my identity was always in baseball or the things that I did and not, you know, just learning more about myself and taking that time to, to understand, you know, me and, and, um, you know, consciously like getting to know myself. So that's a big um, one. That's a big one. Yeah, definitely. Because I think a lot of times that I sought validation through everybody else, whether it was through baseball or whether it was through, um, a relationship or doing well in school Mm -hmm. and never really, being comfortable. And like you said, trying to hide, you know, like now I keep, I'm, I'm complete, I'm an open book, you know, and I make myself as vulnerable as I possibly can. You know, I think there's this, um, misconception that, you know, of what an alpha male or a beta male, you hear that stuff, people say that stuff all the time, but like, I think people that, you know, men that are able to open up, make themselves vulnerable and, and talk about their emotions and feelings and, and just be real. Yeah. Uh, it's healthy. You, know, you, yeah, it helps. It makes a difference because I think I was always taught that, you know, men don't do that. Men don't talk about feelings Men don't process, you know, like emotions and, um, and you don't share your weaknesses and vulnerabilities because especially if you think about prison is that you can't do that in there, mm-hmm. you know, like you will open yourself up for becoming a victim and being victimized, you know, and, um, and, and we live in a society that kind of teaches you that. So like, it's, I would say that's the biggest thing. No, I think that's huge. I mean, that's a great takeaway too. You know, you got to find yourself. Otherwise you'll, you, you have this imposter syndrome that you're doing things that you should probably shouldn't be doing to cover up mm-hmm. things that you haven't dealt with. And if you can find out who you are and where you fit in life, then you get a lot more healthy and comfortable with yourself. Danny, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, I know TikTok, uh, you go to Danny Collins and, and you can yeah. uh, get there. Uh, and 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 actually, um, Containing Luxury, is, is that what the, really, get the name? Yeah, right? ContainingLuxury.com. TikTok is Danny F. Collins and Instagram's both. Instagram too, right, exactly. Yeah. And then Containing Luxury on all platforms as well. Yeah, and th- check them out. It's really, it's it's a cool thing, and I hope it goes so, I mean, I can see these things being communities and, and really solving a lot of problems for a lot of different people. 
Uh, if anybody wants to get a hold of me, go to brentcasty.com. It's with a T-Y, not a D-Y. Um, we spell it wrong. And uh, for, for anybody who wants to buy the book, go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, Nightmare Success. Uh, I'm loving you guys giving me these reviews. You're, you're putting the show on steroids, and it's so, so appreciative because I love doing this, and it's, it's helping break down the narrative that all people need to go back. There's some people out here making their second chances work, like uh, Danny Collins right here. I think his story is going to help a lot of people who listen to this today. As I used to say to uh, my people when I was typing my emails back and forth from Leavenworth, stay strong. I'll do the same. Danny Collins, thanks so much today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Nightmare success in and out.